Yes, indeed. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Good to have you here this evening. Uh, good to have some folks joining us on Zoom as well. We welcome you all. Welcome uh, Pastor Josh, uh, Joshua Stone this evening with us, and his family and friends are here. So it's good to see you all, how they are growing. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Joshua if we would come now and do the first reading and lead us in prayer. And then we'll have your next reading after the offering. See, I didn't follow what I should have done, so I have to correct myself now. <laughs> it's part of ministry, just on the fly. Just um, Greetings once again from Fellowship Baptist Church in Perry Sound. Uh, good to be with you, and good that today, for the first time, at least Perry Sound way, has been a beautiful day. You guys have only had really two, three days of snow. We had a whole week of snow. See, we have about three times as much snow as you do just down the road an ha- hour and a half in Perry Sound. So we got two months of snow in, in basically a week. Um, so, But we are glad for the snow. Um, want to be reading from Psalm 95. So that's Psalm 95. A great song of remembrance and of reflection. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had saw my works. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this evening knowing that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. There is not one thing in all creation that you did not create, O Lord. You fashioned them together, as we read in the beginning of Genesis. Lord, how wonderful, how glorious is your creation. It cries out, as we read in Romans, of you, the creator. But oh, the horrors of corruption and sin. Even as we read in this psalm, your people brought out by your powerful hand out of slavery out of Egypt, wandered in the desert and grumbled and complained, though you had given them so much, though you had redeemed them, though you had rescued them from death, though you had parted the Red Sea, though you had given them your commandments, still they grumbled. And for 40 years they walked in that desert. O Lord, may we take these things to heart. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to come before you in prayer. O Lord, that you have called us to yourself, that you have opened the heavens, that we may come in. Yes, not in our own name, not in our own righteousness, not in anything we have ever done or said, but all in what your Son has done for us. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died. The righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be reconciled to you. Our sin upon his shoulders, his righteousness given to us. Oh, how wonderful a redemption. And we are called to come into your presence, to cast our cares and our fears and our joys and all that is going on in us before you. Lord, knowing that you care for us. Lord, you know all these things better than we do, but yet you have called us to come into your presence. And so, Lord, we thank you. Lord, I pray for this place, and I pray for each one who is here this evening. Oh, Lord, we have come to worship you. You know all the things that are upon our hearts. Oh, Lord, help us by your Spirit to lean upon you, to trust in your word, to be transformed more and more into the image of your Son. Lord, we pray for the leadership here, as they continue to lean upon you, as they look for a new pastor. Well, Father, we pray that you would open doors, that you would draw the right man to this place. Lord, we, we know it has been a long journey so far, and we, we rest in your tender care, knowing that you do all things well, O Lord. And so we wait upon you. Lord, we know that there are many here that are unable to be with us because of different health situations. Lord, you know each and every one. We give them into your hands and ask that you would touch them and strengthen them. Lord, there are those going through great loss, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, help them that they may fear no evil, for they know the good shepherd, the one who walks with them, yes, through the valley of shadow of death. Your rod and thy staff, they comfort Oh, the one who is light itself walks in the valley of darkness. Whom shall we fear if you are with us? Lord, as we continue to lean upon you, as your word goes forth, oh, we pray that you would bless it, that you would work by your Holy Spirit in each one of our hearts and minds. Oh, that we might praise your holy name, for you are worthy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask Pastor Josh to come again. For our New Testament Bible reading, we have Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Probably a well-known passage for most of us. The armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist up with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shone your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that uttermost, sorry, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We welcome you, brother, and the Lord bless as you open the word to us. If you do have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Matthew chapter 3. That's Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. We're actually going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4 this evening, but to get the context behind it, we need to understand what has gone on before in Jesus' baptism, which we find in the third chapter, starting in verse 13. So Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Jesus has traveled the 60 miles from Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Just for a uh, picture of that, that would be you or I walking out the door and making it basically halfway to um, basically past Perry Sound, mm, halfway to Barry. That's quite a distance that he'd be traveling to on foot going straight down from Galilee to the Jordan. But we see Jesus coming to be baptized. In verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights... Afterwards, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Oftentimes it feels like in life when we're on the top of the world, things come quickly crashing in down upon us. It's an interesting fact that if you uh, look at the history of multi-millionaires in the lottery, those that have won multiple millions of dollars in the lottery, what their lives are like several years later. And statistically, most of them will tell you that they're miserable. The money that made them feel like they were on the top of the world one day sunk them down into the pit of despair. 
Either they spent it all in a giant rush and now are broke, owing tons of debt, or perhaps family and friends and neighbors bugged them so much that they they just kind of wanted to pull their hair out. Others thought that the money would give them joy, happiness, meaning in their life, and they found out that riches are vain. And they're miserable even though they have all this money. They thought it would make them happy. But in the end, it just made them sad. It made them miserable. And oftentimes we feel like that in our lives. Things that appear so wonderful seem to fall down upon us. And even when things are going well, it seems so easy to trip and to fall. Maybe sometimes even quite literally. And end up in a place where everything seems dark and hopeless. And that's kind of a picture that we get when we trans Matthew 3 and Matthew 4 together. Matthew 3 is this glorious picture. Christ begins his ministry. He's been living those 30-something years in obscurity, up in Galilee, working in a carpenter's shop. What is Galilee? Those in Jerusalem would scoff hearing the name Galilee, that hick place way up north. It's unclean, surrounded by Gentiles. But that is where the Son of God spent his years toiling away in obscurity until finally it is time for him to begin his ministry. Those three, four years of teaching, taking the disciples, of pointing them to what was about to happen, leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the ministry gets off with a bang. As Jesus appears at the bank of the Jordan River where John has gathered crowds from all over the world who have come to see this man dressed weirdly, eating weird things and proclaiming a message of repentance and reconciliation. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Be prepared for the fire is coming. Be baptized with a baptism of repentance. And many are coming and believing and being baptized by John. And now Jesus comes on the scene. And John just earlier in chapter 3 said, the one who is coming is so wonderful, so glorious, that I am not able even to undo the thongs of, of his sandal. That he is so wonderful, I'm unworthy even to clean his feet. Now cleaning of feet was something that was done by the most minimal of servants. Usually the youngest child among the slaves would be given the job of cleaning feet, which when we think about John, when Jesus, after the meal, girds himself and washes his disciples' feet, gives the picture of Jesus as the servant. Here is the King of kings and Lord of lords washing his disciples' feet. Now John says, this one who is to come is so great, so glorious, I am unworthy even to wash his feet. But here comes Jesus. And what does he ask of John? Baptize me. And John says, why? You don't need baptized. In fact, I'm the one who needs baptized. I'm a sinner and you're not. You're the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Even as we read in John, Behold the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. You don't need baptized, Jesus. I'm the one, even though I'm a prophet, I'm in need of my sins forgiven. But Jesus says, No, it is to fulfill all righteousness. Not that Jesus needed to be baptized, but so that He might stand in our place. That he might do what we could never do by perfectly following and obeying the law and the commandments and fulfilling them. And so Jesus comes and is baptized. And as he comes out of that water, something amazing happens. 
The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and lands upon him, anointing him for ministry. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the king. All these jobs in the Old Testament were anointed. The prophet would come and pour oil on the head of the person. But here the Holy... And all those were just pictures of the Holy Spirit. And here comes the Holy Spirit in power, lining upon Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And the heavens open up and the voice of the Father thunders down for all to hear. Here is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a glorious, wonderful experience. But then immediately, Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. Out into a rocky, sandy area where no one dwells. And in that place for 40 days, Jesus eats nothing. Jesus is led out by his Father to be tested. And the devil sees it as an opportunity to tempt. Here as we read in James, God tempts no one. He tests us. All throughout scripture, we see that God puts us to the test. And in fact, we ourselves are called to test ourselves. As we come to the Lord's table, as Paul writes in Corinthians, we're called to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if there be any sin in us, any wickedness that we need to bring before the Lord in repentance, knowing that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are called to test ourselves. And the Lord tests us. But the Lord does not tempt us. But Satan does. And Satan comes along seeing an opportunity to test the Son of God. For here is a great and wonderful opportunity in Satan's mind. The Son has taken on humanity. He is bearing flesh and the fullness of humanity yet without sin. So maybe, just maybe, he can be tempted in the back of Satan's mind, one can imagine thinking of Adam and Eve in perfection, though they knew not sin, but yet the devil was able to deceive Eve, corrupt Adam, to take and to eat that fruit. And so here Satan thinks, maybe, maybe, just maybe, I can make the Son of God fall. What will happen then? All of Satan's dreams come to fruition. He can destroy God. And so he takes his chance. As he sees Jesus is weak. 40 days without food. Can you imagine that? Most of us, maybe if we fasted, it's been a day or two. Maybe three or four if we had to do a medical test that forced us to. But most of us are so used to food. And to the, the frequency of it that we couldn't even imagine going a week without any food. Uh, and yet, that's what we see here. But more than a week, 40 days, that's, that's pretty much the max the human body can handle. Anything more than that, already at 40 days you are weak, you're anemic, you're having trouble just doing your regular tasks. And so Jesus is weak. Jesus is weary. He's been out by himself for 40 days in the desert. And some of you might be introverts like me. And you're like, oh, it's wonderful just to be by myself and do my own things. But 40 days all by yourself? Even that itch, I, I want to see someone. I want to talk to someone. 40 days. We have to remember that Jesus took on himself perfect humanity, yet without sin. 
He feels this. He feels this. He is weak. He is hungry. And after those 40 days, we read in verse 3, Then the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now sometimes we read this and we, we put the emphasis on the if. And that we make Satan's temptation be, Are you sure you're the Son of God? You should prove that you're the Son of God by turning these rocks into bread. And if you've ever seen pictures of the Judean countryside where Jesus is, it's pretty much just rolling rocky hills. It's not a desert in the way we think of rolling sand dunes. It's just empty rocks. And everywhere there'd be probably big circular pebbles that almost look like bread. If you imagine it, if you're hungry after 40 days of eating. But Satan is not tempting Jesus with the, if you are the son of God. He knows that he's the son of God. And he knows that Jesus knows that he's the son of God. There's no denying that the heavens just opened up 40 days ago and said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan is smart enough not to try to convince Jesus that he's not the son of God. That's what Satan does to us. One of Satan's favorite tactics for you and for me is to try to convince us if we are followers of Christ, if we are Christians, that we are not Christians. Or that Jesus has forsaken us. You are not the sons of God. Satan loves making us doubt the word of God. It's one of his favorite tactics. Well, I know the Bible said, but don't listen to the Bible. But Satan here attacks Jesus with his hungry stomach. And says, you are the son of God. If you're the son of God, why are you hungry? You're the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things. You hold all things together. Why in the world are you hungry? You have infinite power. You could say a word and every stone and pebble in this entire valley could turn into delicious bread. I'm sure Satan went further than just this one line. Matthew is summarizing it for us. You can imagine the devil coming to Jesus and saying, don't you? Nice, crispy bread. Can you imagine the the crunch as it opens up and the wafting smell of fresh baked bread filling your nose? Oh, Jesus' stomach would be doing cartwheels. How hungry he is. Satan is attacking at something Jesus really does want. He is really hungry. Satan is going after a real need Jesus has. But he's trying to get Jesus to fulfill that need in a wrong way. Instead of leaning upon the Father, waiting for the Father's perfect timing, he wants Jesus to go and do it himself. You have all power. You have all authority. Why don't you just do it? But here's the thing. In the incarnation, Jesus takes upon himself the form of a servant. Now, Jesus is not a servant before the incarnation. In eternity, he is equal to the Father and to the Spirit. But yet in the incarnation, in his humanity, he takes the role of a servant. And as he says all throughout the Gospels, he does what his Father commands. He listens to his Father through the Spirit. We see the Trinity in action, in unity, and in fellowship. All throughout Jesus' ministry. There's no separation of the Godhead here. But Jesus is in the form of a servant. He's acting as one, even as we look at him washing his disciples' feet, going to the cross in our place condemned, standing there with our sin upon his shoulders. That's his mission. And so he comes and listens to every word of the Father. 
even as you and I should. And so Jesus here listening, break the bread. What does Jesus do? He takes the word of God and quotes it at the devil. What's interesting, all throughout the temptations here, Jesus brings to the devil's attention Deuteronomy. What's fascinating about the book of Deuteronomy is it's the king's book. Moses, at the end of his life, as he pens Deuteronomy by the Spirit of God, he writes that this book should be for the kings. For in the book of Deuteronomy, we find rules for kings. God said someday the people of Israel are going to demand a king. And here are the rules of what that king must do and what they must not do. And it's a fascinating way to look, especially when you put someone like King Solomon against them, who does so well at the beginning and falls so far short at the end. But one of the things the kings are called to do is when they take the kingship, they are to take a pen or a quill, dip it in ink, and start on a parchment and write out the whole book of Deuteronomy. They're commanded to, by Deuteronomy itself, write the whole book of the law and write it. And not just write it on that parchment, though they're supposed to obviously do that physically, but the idea behind it is write it on your heart. Have the word such in your heart that you know it. For here's what the Lord your God demands of you as king. It's interesting. Who do we have here? We have the true son of David, the true king, the one who was anointed prophet, priest, and king just a few short days ago. And what does he do? He quotes Deuteronomy, the book of Kings, right back at the devil. Here is the true king. And he answered and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3 right back at the devil. And if you know the context of Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, it's the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, complaining about what? Not enough bread, not enough food. God, won't you give me some more? Why aren't you listening to us, God? Why don't you rain down a buffet all the time upon us? It's the grumbling, complaining people of Israel who constantly seem to be on Moses' and God's case. They can never be happy, even though, what, what were they just a few short weeks ago? Slaves in Egypt rescued by God's mighty hand, provided by miracles, the blood on the lentil, the the angel of death passing over them, the Red Sea parting, being brought out, seeing the, the Egyptians drowned, hearing the thundering word of the Lord at Mount Sinai, receiving his commandments, being brought into the covenant. All these things were given them, but yet they were too busy complaining. Let's go back to Egypt and eat from the flesh pots. They have leeks. Don't you remember leeks? They're so wonderful. Better than this manna stuff we keep on getting. But that's actually their mindset. And that's what we read in Psalm 95. The psalmist reminds those that hear the psalm, both in ancient Israel and today, remember what happened in the desert. Remember what happened at Meribah, where the Lord put us to the test. And we failed miserably because we grumbled against God. The one who had reconciled and saved us, yet we grumbled and complained. And yet we see none of that from the lips of Christ. Christ does not grumble nor complain, even though he is hungry. 
Instead, he looks the devil in the face as it were and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. And so his first plan foiled. The devil immediately begins thinking of a second route of attack. And his mind begins to whirl. He says, well, you know, two people can quote scripture. If Jesus can quote scripture, I'm going to quote scripture right back at him. Now, you might notice something when we come to the temptation, the second two temptations in Matthew, in that they're reversed from Luke. Luke has Jesus, yes, the bread, but then he has Jesus on the mountain and then Jesus on the temple. Well, Matthew switches them. So what's, what's going on here? Well, if you're anything like my wife, she loves in her biographies that things move chronological. So you start at the person's birth and you move kind of year by year until they die. And that's how we think about biography. You start at the beginning and then you end at the end. We don't move things around. But the writers of scripture here in the gospel accounts group things together. They're not as concerned about what happened in what order. John is the, really the only um, gospel that seems to move in chronological order throughout Jesus' life. And this in the ancient days is, is nothing. This is how you write biography. And so there's no difference here. They're grouping these things to make their point as led by the Spirit. These are real events that literally happened. They're in different order to make a different theological point. And that's what's happening here. So Matthew records the devil taking Jesus up into the holy city and setting him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now here's the question that people are are divided on. What is the pinnacle of the temple? There's two possible places that this could be. This could either be at the very top of the temple proper, the the large structure that houses the holy place and the holy of holies. And so he'd be up on the top. It's also possible that it's talking about one of the turrets coming off the side defense of the temple that leads over the valley kindred. And so if Jesus was up there, there'd be a massive just straight down into the valley. And it's, we have recorded by multiple people that it was such a drop that you could go up there and you'd feel queasy, just kind of realizing how high you were. And so you have different commentators that say, well, it could be the temple proper or it could be the tower. I, I hold it's the temple proper because Jesus would be seen if he jumped from there. If he jumped from the tower, he'd just fall down and no one would see him. And part of the point of this temptation is that people would see Jesus. The devil takes him up, verse 5, into the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, the devil quotes Psalm 91, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan says, Jesus, here's the word of the Lord. Why don't you jump from the temple and prove to the people that you are the Messiah? Can you imagine for a second if you're just a general Israelite and you're going into the temple that day, all the priests are there doing their work, offering the continual sacrifices. And then you hear someone cry, someone jumped. You looked up and you see this man falling from the pinnacle of the temple. But right before he falls and splat, all of a sudden he begins to float. And he gently lands down on the cement. What do you think you're going to do? You're going to fall on your face and worship this individual. For they literally just descended from heaven. And many of the Jewish leaders believed that when the Messiah came, he would come from heaven. 
that no one would know where he's from. In fact, later on in the Gospels, when they're arguing about Jesus, they say, well, he can't be the Messiah because no man knows where the Messiah comes from. And we know where this Jesus came from and under their breath, Galilee of all places. No prophet comes from Galilee. Now they forget Jonah. Jonah came from Galilee, but Jonah was one of those prophets who talked to the Gentiles and we don't really like them. So we, we, don't, we know where this man is from, but no one knows where the Messiah is from. So there was this idea among many of the groups that the Messiah would just come down from heaven. Even as Christ shall at his second coming descend from the heavens. So they thought the first coming he would come in like manner. And that's what Satan's getting at here. The Lord will protect you. And at the back of it, and you can get by without the cross. The people will worship you. They'll immediately know that you're the Messiah. You don't have to go through all those years of being in the desert, building up your followers and then going to the cross. You can be received now. And Jesus, he feels this. Remember, Jesus feels this because he knows what the cross will cost him. He is not untouched by the very fact that he will be betrayed by his closest friends, that he will be cruelly beaten and battered, that he will hear the lies of those false witnesses speak blasphemies against him, that he will be led and hung naked, scarred, battered, twisted on that cross. And not just the physical agony of the cross, but bearing our sins upon the tree, becoming a curse for us, for cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Jesus knows these things are to come. They're not a surprise for him. He willingly goes to the cross knowing it. He chooses it. It's the very reason why he came. And here the devil says, you don't have to go through all that, Jesus starts here and it moves even greater into the next temptation. You don't have to go through that. What a temptation that is even for us. You don't have to go through those pains. You don't have to go through that trouble and trial. You don't need to be faithful. Just cut a corner. Just do this. Just do that. We'll all be better. But yet Jesus will have none of it. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Then the third temptation. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now here, once again, Satan is doing something a bit mischievous. Jesus has been quoting Deuteronomy. Well, how does Deuteronomy end? Do you remember how Deuteronomy ends? With Moses' death. But what happens before Moses dies? The Lord takes Moses up to the highest hill. And what does he do? He shows him all the promised land. He shows him all the land that is given to Israel. Even though Moses won't be able to step into it. Because in his anger he struck the rock. Instead of talking to it. He did not listen to the Lord. And sinned in that. But he sees the kingdom's. He sees the land. And so Satan, in his twisted, irony way, shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Notice it's just the glory of the now, not an eternal glory. And he says to Jesus, all these things I will give you 
if you fall down and worship me. Satan is, as Scripture says, the God of this world. Not that he has ultimate authority, but in the fallenness, under the curse, Satan is the God of this world. But yet he is not God of gods or Lord of lords. And Satan here says, Come, Jesus, look what I have for you. A great gift I will give you. All the kingdoms of the world. Yes, yes, I know your father says he'll, in his due time he'll give you all these things. Think of Psalm 2. But I can give them to you right now and without any suffering. All you need to do is bow down and worship me. Forget your heavenly father. I'll be your new father. Now this is so ridiculous to us. We, we laugh at this. Who would ever fall for such a stupid thing? As this. Really? Here's Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things, who knows that all these kingdoms are truly his, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He knows these things. But yet, Satan knows what is in fallen humanity and assumes that he can find it in the Messiah. Find it in Christ. Because we laugh at how stupid this is. But yet, if we are honest with ourselves, how often in our lives have we sinned against clear knowledge? How often have we know we know that what we're about to do is stupid? We see the, the, the way of escape, as Scripture says, and yet we plunge right into a sin, whatever that sin might be. How often have we done that? We're honest with ourselves. Really? It's so clear. It's so obvious. How could you ever be so dumb? And I've been there. I said, maybe a day, a couple days later, I finally come on my face before the Lord and say, Lord, how dumb was I? How could I be so stupid to sin in such a way? What a fool I am. I'm so thankful for the forgiveness of God who cleanses and restores. But yet it is our foolishness that we foolishly plunge ourselves into sin, sometimes again and again and again, even though we know far better. We know the way of escape. We know the word of the Lord. And yet we continue down the same sin again and again and again. And the devil hopes he can get that and find that foolishness in Christ. But praise be to God, there is nothing in Christ that would lead him into temptation. So Jesus, looking at the devil, quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. I also love the irony in verse 10 at the beginning. Jesus sends the devil away. Devil might say, I'm the ruler of this world, but who speaks and the devil has to run away? It's Christ. The devil has no authority over him. Away with you, Satan. And Satan is forced like a dog with his tail between his legs to run away. And the devil left him. And notice what? After the temptation, after Jesus has walked through the valley, then the angels come and minister to him. Afterwards, he finds indeed 
His Father's good pleasure and a blessing at the end of the temptation. Jesus has been put to the test and nothing has been found wanting. He has been proven that he is indeed the Messiah, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has done this as he did at his baptism to fulfill all righteousness. Just as Israel failed in the desert, so the Son has succeeded in the desert. Just as you or I far too often cave under temptation and outside of Christ, that's all we do. Yet Christ stands firm and stands fast. Here is the one we can lean upon. Here is the one who can strengthen us in the midst of temptation. Here is the good shepherd. And here, as Hebrews so clearly points us to, is the one who understands what it feels like to be tempted. For he himself has been tempted yet without sin. When we go and we pray, we know who we can talk to, our great high priest. He understands us. There's a thing within Roman Catholicism that you don't go and talk to Jesus. You go talk to Mary or the saints because they'll understand you better. But yet, what does Hebrews say? No, Jesus understands us. Jesus has been through the desert. He has felt the sharp pains of temptation. Tempted in every way, Hebrews said, yet perfect. Oh, the glory of our Savior. Also, we glean from this passage the power of the Word of God. Does the Word of God dwell in us richly? For here is the word of the Lord. Here is sharper than any two-edged sword. Here is what is given to us so that we might know the Lord our God. That first we might be born again unto eternal life, but secondly equipped to run the race that is before us. Equipped to walk this new Christian life knowing the word. Let it dwell in you richly. For the Lord will provide for us Strength, even in the midst of temptation, a way to flee. And oftentimes that comes from the word of God. Verses that we memorize, that we dwell over, that we think on over and over again. All scripture is God-breathed, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. Do we let it dwell in us? Do we let it transform us by the Spirit? Christ has done all things well. And He has done it so that we might be complete in Him. Do you know the Savior? Do you know what it means to be forgiven of your sins, cleansed to the uttermost, reconciled to the Lord God, For all we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to our own way. Who of us could say that we have perfectly loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we have loved our neighbor as ourselves? All of us stand condemned. But yet in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, our Savior Christ the Lord, the one who bore our sin on Calvary, so that we might be redeemed. Scripture from beginning to end cries out, believe in the Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Even the final book, Revelation, at the end, is a cry from God's people 
to those who are not yet God's people. Come, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, come and drink of the living waters. Come and find your sins forgiven. Come and find eternal life. Come and find the righteousness of Christ. Come and find justification. Come and find cleansing. And so much more in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your steadfastness in the midst of temptation in that desert. For 40 days you were without food, hungry and weak. And yet when the devil came, you stood fast. Nothing could move you. You quoted scripture again and again and again against the lies of the devil and commanded him to flee and he was forced to retreat. Oh Lord, you did these things for us. Lord, you came so that we might be redeemed. You came so that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be made new. Oh Lord, what mercy, what grace, what love beyond measure you have showered upon us in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things. Oh, that we might understand anew and afresh all that our Savior has done for us. Lord, what a blessing. And Lord, as we strive to follow after you, we strive to be disciples, following in the steps of our Master. Oh Lord, may we hold fast your word. Lord, may it transform us. Help us that we may know it, that we may read it and be transformed by it, that we may meditate upon it, that it might dwell in us richly. Lord, help us as we endure testing and trials and temptations. Oh Lord, help us to stand fast, to resist the devil and he will flee from us, to stand in all the armor that you have given us, all these wonderful gifts that we are showered upon us in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, empower us for your service, empower us to fight, empower us to stand firm and fast. Oh Lord, help us that we might be a witness to friends and families and co-workers. Lord, may we stand fast for Christ. May we not give in to temptation and flee, but oh, that we might speak boldly for you. And Lord, when we fall and we fail, as we so often do, oh Lord, we thank you for the cleansing power found in Christ. Oh Lord, help us not to run and to hide, but to go and confess our sins knowing that you are faithful and just. Lord, help us as we walk with you. Oh, lead us and guide us. We need you in the power of your spirit every moment, for without you we are undone. But we thank you for your precious promises that you will not leave us nor forsake us, that you hold us fast, that you are our good shepherd. Oh, Lord, we rest on these things, for we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.